we're going to be in the book of Habakkuk this morning. Um, I know some people say Habakkuk, and I'll say Habakkuk. I'm going to go with Habakkuk, but I'm sure that I'll get it wrong, so please forgive me. So if you want to get your Bibles out, try and find the book of Habakkuk. No shame if you want to go to the table of contents. Small book, two to three pages long, about two-thirds of the way through. Um, and then there's, if you don't have a Bible, there's a hardback black one in the pew in front of you. And in that Bible, we are on page 948. I know it takes a while. <laughs> Great. Well, there's, I think there's two types of people in this world. Those who enjoy P.E. class and those who despise P.E. class. So if you're in that first group that you love P.E. class, let me see your hands. Anyone love P.E. class? Okay. Anyone else despise P.E. class? Okay, a little more like it, but we're there, we're there. Well, I kind of tend to count myself in the first group. I loved P.E. class most of the time, and what could be better than smashing your friends with dodgeball after history lesson? Like, what can be better than that? It's a good break in the day. But there was one day in P.E. class that was terrible. In the States, we call it Presidential Fitness Day. Now, I don't know if in the U.K. you have Queen's Fitness Day, but in the States, we had a day where the entire class watched each of us attempt to meet this high fitness standard by the amount of push-ups we could do, sit-ups, chin-ups, how much weight you could lift, and finally, you ended with what's called a shuttle run. Now, for me, this is where it all went wrong, the shuttle run. Perhaps the least dangerous, the least difficult task that anyone could ever participate in in PE class was my downfall, literally. Now, for those who don't know, a shallow run is meant to measure sort of your explosive muscles, about how quick you can have these short bursts of energy. So usually there's a marker about 15 meters away on one side to the other, and your job is to run back and forth as fast as you can. Um, in my um, high school, we had um, just masking tape and these old-fashioned um, chalkboard erasers. So you'd go pick up chalkboard eraser, run over, drop it, pick up another one, back and forth and back and forth. And so it was my turn. And I stood in front of the class. My teacher held the stopwatch. Go, he yelled. And I was off to a good start, you know, picking up the other eraser, put it in over, back and forth. And I thought, by the grace of God, I might actually pass this exam. But it was the last circuit, and we were told to run through the marker. Don't slow down. Keep going. And so I was doing well, and I was on my last circuit. And I was going as fast as I could, and I put on the gas. But then I realized my body was getting slightly ahead of my feet. Has this ever happened to you? So you're kind of slowly stumbling as you're running towards the ending. And then I realized, just as I'm about to end, as I'm stumbling forward, that for some reason, we didn't decide to put these markers in the middle of the gym. Instead, we put them right at the edge of the gym. For some reason, I'm staring at a concrete wall about as close as this wall as I'm stumbling full speed. And so instead of sliding or gracefully falling to my knees, instead, I just keep going until I'm completely horizontal and I dive into the concrete wall with my neck and shoulder and smack, I go down. And everyone's kind of freaking out. What is going on? The girls are nervous. The guys are laughing. It was so embarrassing. Because I have so much adrenaline, I just pop up and I go, oh, I'm fine. Let's just forget about that. I'm really okay. And everyone, you cannot be okay right now. No, really, it's okay. It's okay. Everyone was in sort of shock and kind of laughed off. No, really, it's fine. It's fine. Let me just go sit down and get rid of this embarrassment. So sat down. Everyone else did their shuttle runs easily because it's just running. Um, and, 
and then we decide it's time to go to the weight room to measure our weightlifting. So everyone gets up, and I go get up. Oh, uh-oh. Shooting pain fills my body, and I try to get up, can't get up. Um, a friend looks at me, looks at me, goes, you don't look okay. You're completely white right now. And then I try to speak, and I'm hyperventilating. I can't speak, see some stars, and go into shock. So if anyone has a better PE class story, please, please tell me after the service if you can top that. Now, the reason why I tell this embarrassing story is because for some of us, 2017 has kind of come and gone in all the busyness and the running around. And in the process, some of us may have gotten hurt. So we might be coming in and we're dealing with that pain or anxiety, whether it's doubt or maybe just physical pain. And we're all kind of coming into 2018 going, no, no, it's fine, really. It's okay, it's okay, I'll be okay. We come limping. Now, I'm sure there's also people here today who's had the best seven days of 2018, and we would love to hear about that. But I can promise you that there are people sitting on either side of you who come limping this morning. And the truth is, we've all been there. And who knows what 2018 will bring. For many of us, pain, hurt, doubt might just be around the corner. So as a community, as a church family, we need to think through how we deal with the trouble, the hurt, the doubt when we feel under pressure. So today, that's what we're going to be asking. What does authentic faith look like under pressure? When confusion and doubt come, what does our faith look like? When pain and suffering come, because they will, how do we respond? When the daily grind of everyday small tasks begin to feel like an endless cycle of meaninglessness, what can we do? Now, if you're like most people in the world today, you might first scour the internet looking for help or consider new techniques or effective habits or inventive products to help deal with the hurt and pain. But instead, over the next three weeks, we're going to go back 2,400 years in time to 603 BC to listen to a disturbed, somewhat insignificant prophet in the kingdom of Judah deal with this impending doom of a nationwide invasion. And that prophet's name is Habakkuk. So let me set the stage for you before we jump into this book. Habakkuk is an Israelite. That means his faith, his trust, his worldview is all wrapped up in the identity of being part of Yahweh's chosen people. That is the God of his forefathers, Abraham and Isaac, Jacob and Moses. And God had promised that to bless his people, they would bless the entire world. Through Habakkuk's people, the world's brokenness would be renewed and restored. But hundreds of years have passed, and the kingdom of Israel is in shambles. In fact, in 930 BC, this kingdom that Yahweh promised to bless the world fractures, and it splits into two kingdoms. Let me show you on the screen. We have the top, on the top we have the kingdom of Israel, and they have their own king in Samaria. And on the bottom we have the kingdom of Judah with their own kings in Jerusalem. We have this fractured nation ruled by two evil kings. But I thought God said he would promise a good messianic king who would, who would heal this world. And then it gets worse. In 734 BC, the Assyrian Empire overthrows that northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel. Get that up there. And this is where we pick up the story. In this cavity of disappointment and of doubt and confusion, And all that's left is this small kingdom of Judah 
And on the fe- in the future, as their wicked neighbors, the Babylonians, grow in power, everyone's walking around going, no, I'm fine, really, it's okay, I'm fine, I'm fine, don't worry about it, I'm fine. But we know from history that only three years, this Babylonian empire will take the last of Judah into exile. So it's on the edge of this cliff, as the kingdom of Israel begins to fully deteriorate, that we pick up Habakkuk's story. He's one of the last prophets of Judah, but he's an odd prophet, because we will see that he doesn't really speak like a normal prophet. He doesn't say, thus saith the Lord. In fact, this book is more like a conversation than a command. It's more like a prayer than a proclamation, and it's more like a piece of poetry than a group of propositions. As one writer put it, the book of Habakkuk is similar to a rare look into the private diary of a very confused preacher. So, as we begin to jump in, let's take a moment, put on our glasses, and look through this situation from the perspective and eyes of Habakkuk, one of the last prophets of Israel, as the kingdom begins to fall. Let's read verses 1 to 4 of chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help, and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, and why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so that the law is paralyzed, and justice never goes forth. For the wicked, wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. So Habakkuk cries because he's looking and sees so much unpunished, uncorrected wickedness. He sees unremedied suffering. As a prophet whose job was to speak the truth to his people, he finds that there's nothing but sin and violence and iniquity in his own people. The very thing that God has called him to do doesn't seem to be doing anything. And above all, God seems inactive. He's silently allowing wickedness to grow. It's an intense way to start a book, isn't it? I mean, as we read through these first couple verses, what do you make of Habakkuk? What's his tone like? He's a bit raw, he's upset, there's lots of questioning, maybe confused. But one thing is for certain, he's gutsy, right? I mean, think about who he's talking to again. He's talking to the Lord. Oh, Lord, he starts, how long am I going to cry? Which is part of the reason why this is such an odd book. Because remember, the job of a prophet was to mediate and communicate God's truth to man. So take God's truth and mediate through his mouth to the people. But notice from the very start, it's reversed. Habakkuk turns around. He says, Lord, how long am I going to lament? What is going on? The tables have turned for this prophet, which begs the question, can you do that? I mean, is he allowed to talk to God like that? That's just being unfaithful, right? This book has made a lot of people uncomfortable over the years. When questioned, the famous French philosopher Voltaire said, this Habakkuk is a scoundrel, capable of anything, a rogue. In the Hebrew Midrash, which is a commentary, um, a Jewish commentary, a rabbi tries to condemn some of Habakkuk's speech, saying, it's just a bit too radical, it's too personal, it's too intimate. But the truth is that's precisely the point. And that is our first point. Under pressure, authentic faith is honest. Notice what he's doing. He's not going, no, no, really, I'm fine, I'm okay, it's, it's all right. He's being brutally honest with the Lord because the faith we've been called to is intimately personal and honest. And in the Bible, this way of dealing with this pain, 
This discouragement through raw, honest dialogue is called lament. This is precisely what Habakkuk is doing. It's just expressing that there's this giant chasm between the reality of what he's experiencing and his expectations. Have you ever been there? Do you know that chasm? He takes all this confusion, all the, all the pain, he brings it to the Lord. How long are you going to let this happen, Lord? I mean, the law is being paralyzed. Where, where's your justice in the world? Why do I see sin everywhere? Why do I see sin inside of me? Why do you feel far off? Why do you seem to idly watch all this happen? Have you ever wanted to ask that to the Lord, but you felt that you couldn't? Habakkuk is trying to teach us this language of lament. Because in our modern world, we've largely forgotten how to lament. How to honestly process our confusion and our doubt and our pain. And that seeped into the church as well. We don't know what to do with it a lot of times. Because for many of us Christians in the West, our faith has become privatized, become individualized, become abstracted from everyday struggles. And we live in a culture that has trouble even naming and processing this doubt and confusion. We prefer the numbness of keeping everything at arm's length. The, no, no, I'm fine, really, it's okay, I'm okay. When in reality, we see that God listens and he responds to our lament. Um, as I was studying this week, I came across an article um, in a theological magazine I found to be profoundly accurate and um, disturbingly insightful to the way many of us live, and it's called Click Fix. And in the article, um, the writer Mark Barnes writes about a recent trip to the London National Gallery, I'm assuming that many of you have been there. And he went to sit and contemplate these famous art pieces, as you do at an art, um, an art museum. But he only, once he got there, he only found hordes of people with their smartphones out, snapping pictures of the pictures. Have you ever seen this happen? Or maybe you're that person that goes up to the Van Gogh and takes a picture and moves on. So I want to read just a couple thoughts as he sits there and watch people take pictures of the art. I think it helpfully illustrates our inability to process and deal what oftentimes is right in front of us. He writes this, At the London's National Gallery, I found my gaze shift from the paintings to the people viewing them. They would drift forward to a painting, stop, read the placard, lift their smartphone, click, and then move on to repeat the process for the next work that caught their eye. The whole ritual was about 15 seconds, 20. They thought that they could get a selfie with it. My internet-trained generation stands before the Van Gogh without religious sentiment, or aesthetic education, and they panic. We know its greatness in theory only, but our hearts remain stony. We act upon it with scrutinizing eyes. The painting does not act upon us. The agent does not become the patient. The outside object does not become the source of movement within our soul. We do not feel. That day at the National Gallery, I got the curious sensation that the trip to the museum was not to see but to forget, not to delight, but to relieve me of the dreadful demand the work places on my heart. The moment the museum goer takes his picture usually indicates the end of his encounter. The glance toward the screen rarely returns to the painting. A click, the thing has been dealt with, as if by snapping a shot, the painting has been contained and stored, no longer shaming the heart for its hardness or threatening us with an experience that would topple our control. 
This is the persistent tendency of our technology. Each app and innovation promises control, stymieing our experience as passive recipients until, godlike in our control, we, became, we become machine-like in our hearts, unfeeling satellites in an age without meaning, orbiting a significant planet without the capacity for surrender required to participate in its life. This is the culture we live in. Godlike in our control, we become machine-like in our hearts, unfeeling satellites in an age without meaning. So just as the many visitors looked at the beautiful Van Gogh painting for a total of 10 seconds, took a quick selfie and carried on, so too I think that's how we often treat God and suffering. We've forgotten how to relate to the thing behind the phone screen. I don't know about you, but I oftentimes find myself hearing a sermon and thinking, oh, click, that was a nice sermon. Or go to service, click, that was a nice service. Or click, that was a nice thought. Click, that was a nice devotion. I'll just save that for later. And a life full of what Mark calls a click fix means that when pain and suffering and doubt comes, we don't always know how to engage. The camera phone way of living seems to be lacking. Sometimes we might only have a couple nice words tucked away in our pockets when we really need a relationship to engage in. So Habakkuk is trying to teach us that real authentic faith, when put under pressure, is honest. Sometimes uncomfortably honest. Sometimes kind of ugly honest. Because this faith is not only a set of beliefs, it's faith in a personal God. A God that we can bring our confusion and our pain and doubt to. So for some of us, we really need to hear that this morning. We're, we're allowed to not be okay. This prophet Habakkuk, who we're reading 2,400 years later, who's in the Bible, right? He's in the Bible. He wasn't okay. And he told God, I just, I'm not getting it. For others, of us, for others of us, in order for our faith to grow and mature and blossom, we need to actually take a step forward and be honest with the Lord. When's the last time you prayed this sort of prayer, a prickly prayer that's specific? Now, some of us might be wondering, yeah, but like, how far can you go? Isn't there a limit to our honest questioning? Can it be unhelpful, maybe even sinful to lash out at God? And yes, absolutely. But that's different to what we see here in Habakkuk. It's the difference between speaking at God and speaking to God. It's the difference between speaking at God and speaking to God. It's the difference between a son who really asks his father, who do you think you are to not let me go out tonight? And a son who, when after not seeing his father at the footy game, says, Dad, where were you? Why don't you come to the footy game? You said you'd be there. It's a big difference. This is not accusatory condemning. This is genuine deep questioning. This is lament. So, if your faith is under pressure, be honest about it. And if you're doing really good, make sure your relationship with the Lord is vibrant and open so that when time comes, you can actually relate to God in this way. I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but this is so uncomfortable. I don't process like this, or this isn't how Christianity is done around here. Maybe some of us are just afraid to open up. Please, let Habakkuk teach you. Because you know what happens when we're not honest. God just becomes a cliche. He becomes an object rather than a person. We end up with a pixelated snapshot God rather than the interactive God we can talk to. If we're not honest with the Lord, 
our faith will become intellectually dull, emotionally numb, and spiritually cold. Many of us might find ourselves in that group this morning. But the good news this morning is that wherever we are, whether we're in the midst of a crisis or we're dealing with everyday disappointments or we're dull to the reality of God himself, we can come with all of that to the Lord. But it takes a step of courage to be honest. Authentic faith under pressure is honest. So here we have Habakkuk in the midst of this moral and spiritual deterioration of Judah. Habakkuk cries to the Lord for an answer. Come on, Lord, answer me. Where are you? Now, if we look in our Bibles, there might be a section header above the next section. It might read, the Lord answers. So let's hear how the Lord answers Habakkuk's honest plea. Starting in verse 5. The Lord answers. He says, Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. It's a beautiful verse, isn't it? I'm going to do something new that if, you, if I told you, you wouldn't even believe it. I call this a sort of a coffee cup verse. You know what I'm talking about? Sort of a Jeremiah 29:11 quality to it. You know, throw it on a coffee cup, it'll sell like hotcakes, right? I'm sure that, as Americans know, you might find it up on your mother's wall, maybe scribbled on there. Or I know as a youth group, um, this was our theme verse one year. Behold, God's going to do something new and exciting. So let's keep reading. What is the Lord going to do? This is exciting. Starting verse 6. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. Uh Uh-oh. That bitter and hasty nation who marched through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. It's not good. They're dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than lepers, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle swift to devour. They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand, and at kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. Then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Okay, not a good coffee cup verse. Mark that down. Don't buy the coffee cup. (laughs) I'm raising up the Chaldeans to come destroy and judge Judah. That's what I'm going to do, not a coffee cup verse. So after being open and honest and crying out to the Lord, the Lord's answer is, Actually, it's going to get a lot worse. Your enemy, who by all accounts is more evil and wicked than you, is going to come and take you into captivity. And we know that in three years this is going to happen. The Lord's answer is going to come. He's going to use an evil nation to judge Judah. Have you ever been there? Okay, I don't mean like being taken into captivity by ancient Babylonians, but crying out to the Lord only to find that things get worse. Anyone ever been there? So we launch into Habakkuk's second question in verses 12 to 17. We're going to find that under pressure, authentic faith is thoughtful. Let's read verses 12 to 17. Habakkuk responds, Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up? The man more righteous than he. You make mankind like the fish of the sea, 
like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net, and he gathers them in his dragnet, so that he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet, for by them he lives in luxury, and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? Habakkuk's second question is really, okay, Lord, but why are you answering my prayer like that? Why are you going to do it that way? Because at the start of the question, he contemplates who God is and thoughtfully reflects on what the Lord is like. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, I have an absolutely wonderful wife, and occasionally if I'm running late to work, um, or if Emily wakes up early, she'll lovingly make me a lunch to bring to work. And it's always a nice treat to get to work and open up lunch. And oh, what do we got today? Got, got an orange, got a sandwich, crisps, rooting around. But then, uh-oh, where's the cookie, right? Oh, no. I know she just b- baked fresh cookies. Did she forget? Maybe she meant to forget. Is it a sign? Oh, no. Right? Now, in that moment, that mini lunchtime lament, right, of the cookie... In that moment, I never question whether Emily loves me or wants my best, because I know she does. But it's precisely because I know that Emily loves me and wants my best that I ask, but where's the cookie, right? Where's the cookie? A mini lunchtime lament. And this is kind of what is going on with Habakkuk, though, because he knows what God is like, because he knows he's from everlasting, that he's holy, that he's a rock, that he has pure eyes. That's why he's having such a hard time swallowing this. Why would you ever let this happen? God, I know what you're like. Under pressure, authentic faith is thoughtful. In the midst of confusion and anxiety and pain, Habakkuk presses further into lament, but not without reflecting on who God is, not without remembering what kind of God he knows and worships, not without grounding himself on the character and love of God. When we go through anxiety, confusion, suffering, when the Lord seems to answer our prayers the exact opposite of what we want, it can be very easy to throw our hands up in there and say, Well, God must really not care, or if he does, not capable of doing anything about it. We tend to spiral down to this despair. We tend to let go of our convictions of who God is. But notice, Habakkuk does the opposite of that. In the midst of lament, he reflects on who God is in order to more profoundly express his lament. He says, I know you are pure God. Therefore, why don't you let the wicked swallow us up? I know you're a rock, but why are you... Why are you letting us be judged by an evil nation? I know you are holy, but why are you letting this happen? In the midst of the lament, he's holding up his knowledge of God in one hand and his dreadful experience in the other at the same time. See, we're often tempted to let one of them go because it's easier that way. But Habakkuk is teaching us, don't go into this confusion and pain unthoughtfully. Yes, honestly hold all your pain in one hand but in the other, thoughtfully hold on to the God you've come to know and love. Even when the world is crumbling around you, because it was literally for Habakkuk, the rug underneath his face was being pulled out. All of God's promises were being put into question. He responds, I still don't get it, because I know you're the rock, our everlasting holy God. Temptation is to forget who God is and who he's been to each of us when disaster strikes. So in that moment... Sit, reflect, contemplate, and consider. For if under pressure our faith is not thoughtful, we might be tempted to slide into hopelessness. And this is not what Habakkuk is teaching us. 
He's teaching us, be mindful. Maybe if you're experiencing a lot of stress or dealing with pain, you want to resign yourself to hopelessness, sit down and read this passage. Because this isn't a weak, flimsy, cheap answer. This is a very confused brother who's grappling with his experience and his faith. Now, the name Habakkuk has two meanings. One is wrestler and the other is embrace. It's as if in his very name, he's teaching us. Honestly embrace your pain, whether it be giant, overwhelming, or small and constant. And embrace the Lord, both. And don't forget what he's like. Enter into this wrestle. Under pressure, authentic faith is thoughtful. It's considerate. It's contemplative. Even in the midst of confusion, that our God is an everlasting God putting things to right. Finally, we come to our last piece of the lament puzzle. Having a faith that is honest and thoughtful, finally, we need one that is watchful. Under pressure, under pressure authentic faith is watchful. Let's read the first verse of chapter 2. Habakkuk says, I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look to see what he will say to me and, I, and what I will answer concerning my complaint. In this one verse, we have the final posture of Habakkuk. He goes to a watch post on the city wall to watch on the watchtower at the horizon, see how the Lord will answer. The final posture of lament is one of attentive, patient waiting. But this isn't what we wanted to hear, right? After the honest and thoughtful embrace, we ought to have a clear-cut answer. We deserve to have our minds calmed, right? Everything fixed. What is this waiting and watching? What is that about? I was in a waiting room yesterday waiting for shots. It's awful. It's a little anxiety chamber in there. What is this waiting and watching? Yet as Habakkuk comes to the end of himself, he resigns himself to standing at a watchtower and waiting. How is the Lord going to act? How is the Lord going to look after his people? How is the Lord going to save Even though watching and waiting is one of the most fundamental postures for the Christian's heart, we're really bad at it because it goes sort of against the grain of our own hearts because we're people of immediacy. We live in a culture of free next-day shipping. And if our package isn't here by tomorrow, oh my goodness, right? And yet many of us carry burdens and struggles for much longer than just one day. God doesn't offer a sort of next-day prime guarantee to our problems. That's a hard truth to swallow. Sometimes the most faithful thing to do, after honestly and thoughtfully working through a confusion, is to wait and watch. God will act. He will save. But maybe not today. And could it be that in the lament, as we wait, we can become even more attentive to the way that he's working in, around, and among us? Waiting sort of retrains our hearts to be more attentive and aware of what the Lord is doing when we call on him to act. Have you ever been through a time in your life where there was a long period of waiting? As you look back and you say, I see him there, and I see him guiding me over there, and I see him comforting them over there. Habakkuk has come to the end of himself and simply says, Okay, I'm watching and waiting on you, Lord. Under pressure, authentic faith is watchful because it oftentimes has to wait. Could it be that this waiting and watching is a gift, trying to show us the unexpected ways that God works to rebuild and recreate this world? 
I don't know about you, but when I go through times like this and I have to pray really prickly prayers, I tend to prescribe the answers I want. Are you tracking with me on that? I tend to prescribe the answers I want in my prayers. When I'm confused and hurting, I tend to speak to God as if I know the best way to solve the problem. But this waiting and watching piece of lament is precisely how the Lord retrains our hearts and minds that he has a different perspective. And his answer is usually unexpected. We would never, we have never guessed. It could take a couple hours, could take a few weeks, could take a few years. And Habakkuk saw God's chosen people, the way God had promised to rebuild this world. He saw it fall. He saw injustice and violence among the kingdom of Judah, and saw that the Lord's answer to his cry was that an evil, more even more evil nation would take them into captivity. That's definitely not the prescribed answer he wanted. Very unexpected indeed. But we do know that Habakkuk's cry and prayer for justice and peace and blessing to the whole world through a king of Judah would be answered, but in a very unexpected way. So we just celebrated a few weeks ago, a helpless baby was born from the tribe of Judah. He grew up. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He had no beauty that we should desire him. He wasn't our prescribed answer. He didn't come in power and might. He's not what we expected. But he came in weakness and humility. Eventually we know that this Messiah King would not only crush pain and death, but he bore it on a tree as he cried, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Our God is a God who enters into our lament. He knows our pain and our confusion. He's bored and he's defeated death itself. Jesus is the very unexpected answer to Habakkuk's prayer. So, if you're going through real hurts and you have enough courage to say, you know, I'm not really okay, Lord. I really do need your help. Remember that our God is not a distant God, but one who knows our pain and our bruises and our confusion. As we navigate through this life full of its perplexities, we wait together on God as God's people, as we bear one another's burdens and watch for the Lord to move and recreate everything. And he delights to hear us. Another prophet named Isaiah, who prophesied to the northern kingdom, going into exile, writes this from the perspective of the Lord. Hear this. The Lord says, On your walls, O Jerusalem, I have set watchmen, all day and all night they shall never be silent. You who put the Lord in remembrance, take no rest and give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in the earth. Under pressure, authentic faith is honest, it is thoughtful, and it is watchful. So whether you're in the midst of a crisis, or struggling through just the everyday difficulties of life, make sure you know this language of lament. It's not feeling down or crying for the sake of it. It's always redemptive. God hears his people, and we are his watchmen, and we are to give him no rest until he establishes Jerusalem and makes it a praise in all the earth. So we're going to continue on <clears throat> in the next couple of weeks in this book. And the story's going to progress, and as we get to chapter 3, there's this beautiful ending in chapter 3. So I want you to know chapter 3 is coming. It's beautiful. We'll get there. But right now, 
Let's not rush to chapter 3 too quickly. Right now, we need Habakkuk's faith in chapter 1 to teach us, to guide us, to be honest and thoughtful and watchful. If you're not there this morning, know that many people are. And as a church, it is our duty to bear one another's burdens. This is where this sort of language can happen in our church family. So, as we end, why don't I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we come before you um, from all sorts of different perspectives, from those hurting, from those in joy and excitement. And we're thankful for all the blessings you give us. But more than anything, we desire that you would come back and recreate this world. A lot of us are bearing burdens and difficulties. Would you help us to come quickly to you? And as we come quickly to you, may we give you no rest until you come back and establish Jerusalem and make it a praise in all the earth. We pray, as the um, Apostle John says, come, Lord, quickly. Please come. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.